Let's stand together for uh, the reading of God's Word. And primarily this morning we'll be in Psalm chapter 10. We're not going to read the whole psalm at this time. We're just going to read the first verse. And the psalmist is asking a question. And it may be a question that you've asked on occasion. And I want you to know on the front end that God's okay with our questions. Uh, There's no question you've got for the Lord that he said, oh, please don't ask that. Right? Uh, Christian faith is a faith for the thinking person. And here is the question. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever felt that way? Author, this psalm felt that way. So here's where we, what we got. We got a question, but here's what we also have to recognize. When we have questions, God will have something to say in response. So that'll be the rest of this psalm. So let's pray together, and we'll study this wonderful psalm this morning. Father, I um, pray particularly for anybody that's in the room this morning that this is a question they're asking right now. Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? in a time of trouble. I pray that this would be a place where people who honestly feel that question, it'd be okay to ask. But at the same time, Father, I also pray in Jesus' name that when we ask that question honestly, we'd wait for an answer humbly. So use this psalm for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. We are in a series of sermons that are emphasizing the subject of prayer. And a couple of things that we looked at last week were this confession from Romans 8. We do not know how to pray as we ought. Have you ever been in a situation where you were supposed to be doing something and you didn't quite know how to do what you were supposed to be doing? Maybe that's happened to you at work. You're given a responsibility and you went out to begin to do that and then got in it and realized, I don't know how to do this. I remember not too many Christmas Eves ago, it's probably been seven or eight years ago now, that uh, I thought this task of putting some toys together, this little baby doll play set for my daughter was going to be easy. And I then got into it, and it's Christmas Eve, do you know what I mean? Like the clock is ticking, you ever been there? And uh, sunrise is going to come before long, and the children are going to be up, i got to get this thing done, right? And I, like most men, just said, well, figure it out, and then wasn't getting figured out, had to go, you know, what men don't like to do, had to go get the instructions, right? So a couple things is the Bible says straight up, we don't know how to pray as we all. Romans chapter 8. For the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Just need to confess this. When it comes to our prayer lives, we are weak in our flesh. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we all. So that's point number one. And then the second point that we're trying to bring together, particularly in these weeks, is there's an entire book of the Bible designed by God who knows what he's doing to help us know how to pray. And that book in the Bible, right in the center, is the Psalms, right? The Psalms are our prayer guide. And so what we aim to do over the course of each Sunday between right now and the Sunday before Thanksgiving is take a psalm and see how this would work, right? Not just to say the psalms would help you to pray, but to take a psalm and study it through and see how it is that it would actually help us to pray. And this morning, we're going to take the the title of the sermon straight from the first verse of Psalm 10, How to Pray When the Lord Seems Far Away. Now, uh, Psalm 10, verse 1, we've already read. 
but just to feel it again. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever felt this way? Has it ever felt to you that God's far off? Or that you're going through, a, particularly here in the scripture, verse 2, a time of trouble where it feels to you that God is hiding? Have you ever felt this way? Well, let's put a few thoughts together. This question is being asked where? In Psalm 10. Therefore, this question is being asked in the Bible. Who inspires Scripture to be written? Help me out. Holy Spirit does. So we would take that to mean, right? It's a logical conclusion that God's okay with this question. God's okay with this question. We get this description. The author feels that he's hiding in times of trouble. Maybe you've been there before. An extended time of sickness where it just seems like it goes on and, and on. You've stood in the hospital waiting room, deeply concerned about a loved one. Or you've stood in the cemetery. You've received an unexpected phone call. You didn't know that was happening today. You had a child that so strongly rebelled against the Lord. Now think about it. This question being asked in the scripture. And as we continue to read through, let's read the next few verses. Actually, we'll go on and read through verse 11 and see what it is in life that has brought the author of this psalm to this point. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The world feels unjust. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Why do they keep getting away with it, right? For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times, speaking of the wicked. Your judgments are on high and out, of, and out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. What's going on here? The author of this psalm looks around at the world and says, what is going on? Where is the justice of God? Those who do not follow God, those who say there is no God, they seem that they're prospering. So we, we've called it how to pray when the Lord seems far away. We could have just as easily said how to pray when the wicked seem to be winning, right? And uh, if you uh, read through the Psalms, uh, we'll talk about here in a minute, our focus is first of all going to be the description of the wicked. So if you've got an outline, that'll be the first thing that we're going to cover here, the, the description of of the wicked. Now we're in Psalm 10, but I just want to call your attention to something for a few moments. Look at Psalm 1, verse 1. Very opening of this entire prayer book mentions something specifically. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the we're tracking together? Wicked. Look at Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Look at Psalm 7 in verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Psalm 11 and verse 
5, a little bit after the next, we'll look at this next week. The Lord tests the righteous, but his, whole, but his soul rather hates the wicked. Psalm 12, verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl around, and we could keep going and going. So uh, I think we've done enough, just a little sample there. So you can see that the Psalms talk a lot about the wicked, right? Now let's, let's, let's get something in our heart, big picture. What's the Psalms designed to do? Help us to pray. And if, if the Psalms are designed to help us to pray in a common subject in the Psalms are the wicked, what's one of the great purposes of prayer? It's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? One of the great purposes of prayer is, as you meet with the Lord in prayer, am I on the path of the wicked or am I on the path of the righteous? Does that make sense? And here we bump up right immediately, right here, to one of our greatest barriers to prayer. You know what it is? We are wicked. <laughs> we don't have any righteousness of our own. And so let's get a couple of descriptions, a couple of descriptions of the wicked right from this psalm, Psalm number 10. Uh, when we talk about the wicked, who are we talking about? And for any of us sit on our high horses, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is uh, at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked. So we want to start with this. If you've been saved by grace through faith, there was a time where the description of your life would be what we're about to say, right? We were born into wickedness. You don't have to teach a person to be wicked. When they're born, they are wicked. I love my children, but I knew as soon as they came into this earth and I held them for the first time, two things at once, I loved them so much, and man, they've got a sin nature. God, give them grace to see you. So first of all, I'll just give you a couple of um, descriptions right from here. The wicked first are defined by pride. Verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 3, the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. What is this a description of? It's a description of pride, right? Here's pride. I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. I will put myself before God and other people. Nobody can tell me what to do. And that's our culture, isn't it? It's the air we breathe. What gives anyone the right to tell me what to do? I'll tell you who has the right to tell us what to do. The one who made us, right? The, the, the great tragedy, the wicked in their pride, none of us have called ourselves into being. We will give an account. So, so uh, they, they decide, as the psalm says, in their own heart what is right. The wicked are confident that there's nothing to worry about. This is all rooted in Genesis chapter 3, right? You eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you decide what is right, and there will be no judgment. That's the lies of Genesis 3. That's what the wicked are saying. I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And friends, that is a false hope. When we see pride, we see the root of wickedness. Most every conflict you have in your life, most every conflict you have in your marriage, most every conflict you have in your family, if you pull on it far enough, what is the root? Pride. It's pride. 
So first, the wicked are described as uh, arrogant and boastful and proud. Second, look at verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The, uh, The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. So what's this next description of the wicked? Is foul-mouthed. What does the Bible say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, I, I was um, uh, studying this and seeing these descriptions, and then I went on, um, I was actually going to download a sermon on a podcast, and so went to the podcast page on Apple, and, and uh, they've, got all, they've always got a list there of the most downloaded podcasts, and of the top ten most downloaded podcasts of last week, seven of them had a little red box with the letter E in them. Do you know what that means, right? The podcast is explicit, right? means it's full of this kind of language, and increasingly as a culture, this is how we speak. Third, the wicked are marked by greed. Verse 3, the one greedy for gain curses. Verse 9, he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. In verse uh, 4, uh, not only they're proud, foul-mouthed, greedy, they're also violent. Lurks in ambush. Lurks. Plans ahead of time. A lion in a thicket lies very quietly and then suddenly pounces, right? Volatile and outbreaks of rage. And we could also agree that this is a defining characteristic of our culture, right? Violence. And five, the wicked are, are godless. Look at verse four. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. In verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? The wicked say there is no God. And yet also here in verses 11 and 13, it's interesting, just thinking through the psalm, uh, over here in verse 3, Um, I'm sorry, verse 4, there is no God. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So which is it, right? Are they saying there is no God or are they saying uh, God will not call it to account? And the answer is yes. This is is what uh, one um, commentator said, the inner dialogue of the wicked person. The wicked person has to constantly try to talk themselves into the fact that there is no God and yet there's still something in there. There's still an an inner witness, right? that maybe there is a God after all. And so the wicked person, oh, his life has to say, this isn't going to be called to account. Nobody will ever find out about this. Uh, I'm going to get away with this. I shall not meet adversity. This is what wickedness looks like. And friends, again, this is who we are apart from the grace of God. Do we believe this? This is who we are. This is what lurks in all of our hearts. Pride, foul language, greed, violence, godlessness so for for us if you're a follower of jesus if you see a trace of pride if at any time these words start to bubble up right that would be described as this psalm describes it if there's anger or violence if there's a resistance to god in your soul these are not small trivial things we believe we are saved by grace We also believe the grace that saves us is the grace that begins to change us. 
So wickedness is not a new phenomenon. As we're reading this, and I don't know if you've had this thought, this sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Well, where's this psalm written? Hundreds of years ago, right? So wickedness doesn't change, just sort of uh, the way that it presents itself might, might uh, change. Uh, one generation dresses up in hypocrisy, uh, the next in defiance. It's still both are wickedness. So second, let's, talk, let's think through the deliverance from the wicked. Right? This is the burden that he's got, the questions that he asked. God seems so far away. It seems like the wicked are winning. And then the transition comes here in verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. How do you pray when God seems far away? Why does the wicked renounce God? Verse 13, and say in his heart, you will not call to account. So can I give you the first step on how to pray when the wicked seem to be winning? Can I tell you first how to pray when God seems far away? Here's here's step number one. You have to stop thinking like the wicked. You have to stop thinking like the wicked. This is what he says in verse 13. See, he's he's making a, a a, a transition. Why does the wicked renounce God? And say in his heart, you will not call into account. But see, you do see. Do you believe God really does see? Do you really really believe that God knows everything that's going on? The first step was we got to stop thinking like the wicked. A Christian should act differently from the wicked. Why? Because he or she thinks differently than the wicked. So if the wicked are characterized by pride, what should a believer in Jesus be characterized by? humility we don't go through life thinking everybody's here to serve us remember jesus did not consider equality with god a thing to be grasped now here's the check there are actually human beings what lurks in our heart is we actually believe equality with god is a thing to be grasped that's blasphemous but jesus who is god and come in the flesh had equal but he did not consider equality a thing to be with god a thing to be grasped but made himself but humbled himself and came as a servant. When Jesus comes into the world, how does he come? Is he born in the emperor's castle? No. We're, we're coming in, you know. It's all right to talk about Jesus' birth. I know people get when you get to Christmas, but Jesus' birth is celebrated all year long, right? He comes, he's laid in a manger, laid in a feeding trough, right? I mean, uh, this, this, is, this is a little bit of an aside, but we should treat people the way Jesus treats people. Serving at your restaurant today, if you go out to eat, should be more. Should be able to. He or she should be able to say these people are different. The way they speak, the way they treat, the way they treat other people. The wicked are proud. Followers of Jesus should be humble. Where does this wrestling take place? First of all, it takes place in prayer. This is the whole one of the major points of this psalm. Is he's taking the questions to the Lord. He's thinking through. Second, if a, if a wicked person is foul-mouthed and their tongue is full of cursing, what ought to be true for a follower of Jesus? It's a powerful weapon you've been given, right? As James said, the tongue's a small little thing, but just like a little rudder steers the whole ship, so, so is the tongue, right? Did you really bless somebody? Not bless somebody out. Did you bless somebody this week with your tongue? And you could tell, man, the whole trajectory of their day, it changed. Now, Here's here's an encouragement to you. The call to Christianity is not a call call to be neutral. In other words, the call to to Christ is not we'll do no harm. It's more than that, friends. 
When you enter your workplace, you're going as an ambassador of Christ. And the words you use in your home, in our church, the wicked are defined by being foul-mouthed, right? A believer in Jesus would then be defined by, I'll use my tongue to build other people up. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only as fits the occasion. Listen to the scripture, that it may give grace to those who hear. You ought to make it a goal. Every room you leave, you've left grace behind by what you've spoken to the people who are in the room. Third, if the wicked are defined by greed, what should, uh, what should followers of Jesus be defined by? Not greed, but by giving, by generosity, giving of our time. Talk about these things we do as a church, a fall festival or Operation Christmas Child. It takes your time. It takes your resources. And fourth, if the wicked are defined by uh, um, violence, then a follower of Jesus would be defined not by violence, but by service. Violence is an attempt to bring others harm. Serving is an attempt to bring others good. And of course, fifth, if the, if the wicked are godless, we are godful. I don't even think that's a word, but we just made it up. Your life should be full of the Lord. Deliverance from the wicked starts when we stop thinking like the wicked. Hey, do you believe, do you believe that your city would be different if all those who claim to follow Christ live differently than the wicked? Would your family be different? Would your neighborhood? Now, don't spend your life complaining about the wicked's wickedness. I mean, some Christians act shocked that sinners sin. This, this, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's still at work among the sons of disobedience. He's still at work among whom we all once walked, right? That's why we're, we ought to be a humble people. It's not only the grace of God and his intervening on our behalf. Amen? So first, first we stop thinking like the wicked. And then second, we start trusting God. Verse 14, but you, you do see you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. We'll come back to that phrase in just a moment. To you the helpless commits himself, but you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So if we stop thinking like the wicked, we start trusting God. We've got to have some core convictions when it seems like the wicked are winning. Now, uh, we cannot deliver the world from wickedness. Only God can do that. And that brings us to third, the destruction of the wicked. Let's talk about it for a moment. Now, as a follower of Jesus, when we come back to the Psalms, just in the same way, in the same way when we studied through the life of Joseph, we said uh, everything has to be read through the filter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Psalm, though written before Jesus came, was written in expectation that Jesus would arrive. Does that make sense? So how does God deal with and destroy the wicked?
Do you believe that Jesus endured all that the wicked bring to bear on a person? Can you hold your spot there in, in Psalm 10? And even in your heart right now, I want you to sort of note that we're going to go to the communion table here in a moment. When we remember the body and blood of our Savior. Mark chapter 15. The wicked are proud. The wicked, the wicked's mouth is full of cursing. The wicked are greedy for gain. The wicked are violence. The wicked are godless. With that understanding in mind, I want you to, we're just going to read an extended passage of scripture together. Beginning in Mark 15, verse 6, we're going to read all the way to verse 39. And with that said, I want you to know these are among the most important words you ever hear or read. What we want to ask is, is, is the prayer of Psalm 10 answered? Mark 15, verse 6, now at the feast, he, this Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. Now, if you want to talk about a person who's nowhere to be found in time of trouble, that would be Pilate, not Jesus. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. He's already been scourged, right? And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. The wicked indeed are violent. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they are foul-mouthed. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And they are godless. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put him on his own clothes. Or put his own clothes, rather, on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They are so arrogant. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross and they brought him to the place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not taste it and they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each would take and it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews and with him they crucified two robbers one on the right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. <clears throat> And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. There had never been trouble like this, my friends, until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, this proud, violent, previously godless man, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And when we say we want to read the Psalms backwards, having studied or read Mark 15, let's go back to Psalm 10. I want you to think about the question again. This is really important for your life. Now I want you to think about for a moment. It's okay to ask this question, right? But I want you to think about asking this question in the context of what we just read. Does it make sense? Well, think about it this way. Asking this question in Psalm 10, verse 1, at the foot of the cross, right? And in that manner of thinking about it, doesn't it seem suddenly the most inappropriate of questions? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? He's not far off. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's not hidden himself, friends. They stripped him, laid him bare, and crucified him publicly. He has not hidden himself. Now, I know there are times we feel like he has in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised for the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul and the greedy one for gain curses and renounces the lord in the pride of his face the wicked does not seek him all his thoughts is there is no god his ways prosper at all times your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And no doubt, Caiaphas, the high priest, felt that way, among others. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Hey, get them to release Barabbas, not Jesus. You saved others, why can't you save yourself? He sits in ambush in the villages. His, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. I've got to tell you, friends, he's not helpless. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. They did lurk in ambush like a lion in the garden. Lurk that they may seize the poor, 
seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Now here is the power of the gospel, my friends, is that all those things are true of the wicked. And this prayer is God, God rise up and give the wicked what they deserve. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's bearing what the wicked deserve. And if you can think it through, Psalm 10, hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, here's one saying, God, God, why do the wicked get away with it? Why do the wicked get away with it? Why do they seize and they crush and they curse? Friends, nobody's going to get away with it. But I'll tell you this much. I, for one, am grateful that this wicked one has not received what I deserve. And then I love, in light of the Gospels, to think about verse 12. Arise, O Lord. You know what happened on the third day, right? That prayer is answered, I believe. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. And in light of the cross, in light of the cross, verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. It's an amazing, amazing verse to think about in light of the cross, that he notes it, he notes it, I see it, I see it, and I'm going to take it. You could nail it right here, and you could nail it right here. I will take it. And verse 16 is also true, friends. The Lord is king forever. The nations perish from this land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man of this earth may strike terror no more. G. Campbell Morgan made the uh, uh, observation that this psalm begins with a complaint and ends with confidence. So the difference, friends, between the complaint and the confidence is the cross. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near with confidence. In a moment, we're going to gather at his table to declare his death. And as the scripture says, what do we do? We declare his death through communion until he returns. And he will sit down at the table when all the wickedness is eternally destroyed. And when all the prayers of Psalm 10 are fully answered. But here's where I would like to conclude. Is we believe, we believe that day is coming. We believe it with great confidence because of the day that has already come, right? We believe the Lord will reign forever and ever. And we believe when we sit at the table with him, we will do so 
not as those who have a righteousness of our own, but those of us all who are seated there or wicked in our own right, but Jesus. I love this part. You um, will call all his wickedness to account till you find none. I believe that when I sit at the table with Jesus, there will be no wickedness to account for. Not because I'm not wicked, but because I've believed and been born again in the grace of God that the blood of Jesus has covered all of my wickedness. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. And friends, when he returns, lifts up his hands, we'll see the nail scars that the one who comes in triumph, the sinless one came to pay for our wickedness. Let's have that in mind as we come to the table. We're going to stand together and we're going to pray together. And those of you who are going to uh, be of service, either the deacons are going to come and help uh, serve or um, any of the musicians who may come, uh, we're going to transition right now to this uh, to this table for communion. And as we do so, let's pray together. With your heads bowed, I would just give you a few encouragements before we enter our time of communion. First of all, uh, the Lord's table is for those who are believers in Jesus. So in your heart, if you've, if you've had faith in Christ, believed in his body broken for you and his blood shed for you, and you're invited to participate now in communion. Father, I would like to turn the question into a praise. Father, in light of Jesus, I thank you that you do not stand far off, that you have drawn near. I thank you in light of the cross that you do not hide yourself in a time of trouble, in the time of most trouble, when the Father poured out his righteous wrath against sin, it was you who bore it in our place. And so we come to the table grateful, humble, and worshiping the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated.